socioeconomically, some of us may be middle class, while others may be upper class, and there may even be those amongst us that are in poverty. Some of us may identify as Republican, whereas others identify as Democrat, while some as independent. Some of us may be lifelong Methodists, whereas there are others who have jumped the ship and come over to Methodism. Some of us are, nobles, are Noblesville natives, while others are transplants to the community. Some of us may have degrees from higher institutions of learning, whereas there may be those who did not graduate high school or those who have high school diplomas. Some of us may be enjoying this cool weather, not me. Whereas there are others who wish, that is me, that the sun will shine again and quickly. Now, I know I started, I started out talking about how we are not the same, and there could be some wondering, oh no, where is this going? Why did Reverend Mindy have to point out all of the ways that we are different? I mean, we may be different, but let's stop the negativity. Let's stop focusing on the things that divide us as congregations and as people, and let's instead move towards some positive thoughts. You see, I did it on purpose. That actually was the point. Differences will always be present, yet despite our many differences, we are worshiping together. We are worshiping together as believers in the body of Christ, together in what I hope is a time of love. For you see, I believe that despite all of the differences that we can talk about, all of the differences that we can think about, there is a little bit of power. And actually, I think I might change that little bit of power to a lot of power in what can grow from this thing called love. For when practiced, love conquers all. So our scripture today, Colossians 3, 11 through 15, it gives us some directions on how to live a new life in Christ. It gives us the rules of what a holy life should look like. The scripture, it sets out the pattern for living what one would call a transformed life. And this transformation is not only a personal transformation, but when each of us participate in the personal transformation, our communities will also transform. There will be a unity and we will see the true risen Christ. It states the desires, values, and practice determined by Christ and not by the world. And of all the virtues shared, we will learn that love conquers all. As we talk about love to my Bethel members, I know you're probably like, Reverend Mindy, you just preached about love last week. And that's how important love is. So important that I'm going to preach about it for a second week in a row. To the members of Noblesville First, the Cliff Notes version of last week's sermon, because it was like 20 minutes and I don't have time to preach that one and this one, but it came from John 13, 31 through 35, and it's reflected in our scripture today. We learned last week that all of us are commanded to love. We learned that we are to try to do our best to love like God loves us and to love like Jesus loves his people. A servant love washing the feet, a caring love, sitting at the table with the one that he knew would deny him, and also with the others that he knew would uh, just say that they didn't know him. 
sitting at the table with the one that he knew would betray him. A, a Jesus love, one that in the Bible we saw fed the hungry and prayed for the sick and remembered those in prisons and looked out for those in the margins and, and so much more. We really don't have to be taught what it means to love. I feel like that's a cop-out when we say we have to be taught what it means to love. But because Jesus has already modeled this love for us. A, a love that is more than a feeling, but a love that is an action. And, and as I told my members last week, I get it. None of us are Jesus. If we're really going to keep it real, and if we're going to be honest with ourselves, it's really hard to try to model Jesus. As a matter of fact, we're not going to get it right 100% of the time. And if we're really going to be true, we fail at it daily. But there's some good news. And the good news is as we think about it, that God still loves us despite our flaws. And when we fail, God will pick us back up. As they say, try, try, and try again. Now, that does not mean that you get a pass not to love because all of us are called to love, and that's what the scripture tells us. You see, in the world that we live in, it is so easy to look at the differences because we've been conditioned to do so. Every application that you have found out since the moment that you were born had boxes to check. They had to check whether you were male or female. They checked your race. They checked all kinds of other things. So we really are conditioned to look at this idea of differences. But you see, according to the Bible in this scripture, verses 11 to 12, it puts the idea of separation to rest real quick. The biblical version, when this was written, told us that we were not Jew or Gentile, that it wasn't about circumcised or uncircumcised, that it wasn't about slave or free. My 2022 version says that it's not about race or sex or gender or socioeconomic status, education level, where you come from, the denomination that you decide to practice, or even if you prefer cold to warm, although I question that one a little bit if you prefer the coldness. No, it's not about that. Why? Because the scripture goes on to tell us that we are not that, but that all of us are God's chosen people. I tend to be pretty intentional about words, and here I have been told that we are chosen. They said we. They didn't say I was chosen, or they didn't even put a specific name in the Bible. Like, that's the great thing about the Bible. You can tell when something is written to one particular person. Whereas when it's written to everybody, and it said we here. It said that we are God's chosen. And as God's chosen, we are set aside. Each and every one of us in our own unique ways, we are all special. But in our own unique ways, each and every one of us has some work to do. Because you see, the scripture continues. It says as God's chosen people, we must practice compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It says that we must bear with one another and forgive. 
I could have preached a sermon on each of these virtues alone, but I didn't take the time to focus on each particular characteristic. For you see, there is one virtue that trumps all these virtues, and that virtue is love. So my brothers and my sisters, whether you are a member of Bethel or Noblesville first, know that love conquers all. For you see, when we love, and I'm talking about that true love, like love that's not just a feeling, but that love that's an action, it can bind us together in perfect unity. When we love and when we're unified, the unity of God that, that God longs for in his kingdom my members know I love a good song, but they also know that their pastor is not the best singer. But there is a song from the 1970s by Captain and Tennille, and it says that love, it'll keep us together. But you see, listen, Captain and Tennille ain't even told us nothing new because we got that love over 2,000 years ago from Christ. We, we get to experience the peace of Christ in our hearts. Because the scripture says that when we all truly love, that we are bind together as one body. And again, I'm intentional about the words of the scripture. So the scripture said one body. It didn't say we were bind together and somebody would be the head and somebody else the hands and somebody else the feet. No, yes, each of us have a different role. But when we love, we are bind together as one body. We may be our separate congregations, but if we truly practice love, the capital C church will be one body. A, a body not called to division and fussing and fighting, but a body called to peace. A body called to do the work of God, to gay, together, we can demonstrate this work. You see, when the service ends today, there's a donut truck, and I'm going to encourage everyone to have a donut. But while you have that donut, I'm going to encourage you to get out your comfort zone a little bit. I'm going to encourage you to find someone who doesn't look like you. Find someone who doesn't go to your church. Because the hardest part of starting this love is starting the relationship. It can be a little awkward. Have you ever been in a new relationship? Pretty awkward at the beginning. But if you stick it through, 50 years later, you're still married. So I'm going to invite us to start the awkward relationships as we eat donuts, because see, it's also something about food. Food helps like break the awkwardness down a lot. But, but what it's really about is coming together. What I'll say is there may be times that we mess up along the way because none of us are perfect. There are times that we're going to put our, our foot in our mouth and say the wrong things. But the love of Christ has a lot of virtues that come with it. The kindness and the compassion the humility, gentleness, and even patience. A little bit of patience. So, so to Bethel Noblesville, to Noblesville first, to all of my brothers and sisters, you are chosen. Together, each and every one of us are chosen. And the scripture says that we should be chosen as the unified body of Christ. It tells us that together we can carry the word of Christ. Together we can have the peace of Christ. Together we can be thankful for all that God has done for us. But because love, it, it conquers all. 
Now this last paragraph of my sermon, I have to say it's not necessarily biblical. I feel like I have to let people know that because I don't want them to ever think I'm telling them what the Bible says as a preacher. So this next part is not necessarily biblical. But it's, it's just the Reverend Mindy reflection. Bethel and Noblesville first. Can we dream? I'm a dreamer. And I truly dream the same dream that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has dreamed. But, but let us dream and, and let us look forward to the great things that God can do and God will do. Let us look forward to what happens when love truly binds us together. Because I believe that despite what is going on in the world, I believe despite the sad news that at this point it feels like we see every day, despite mass shootings, despite overdoses, despite children being harmed, despite wars in other countries, despite the stuff that might be going on in our lives, despite all of the evil that we see within the world, I believe that this is the time. But the time is now for us to truly demonstrate what it means for love to conquer all. And I also believe that, that although at this exact moment we may not understand what's going on, I believe there is a shift in the atmosphere. And I believe that God is taking us to new levels. And as that, we must remember that all of us are God's chosen people. We must remember that we are called to work together. And we must remember, I tell my members every week, like there is more and you have some work to do. So the work that we have to do today it begins with love because love conquers all. So when we practice love, it can and it will conquer all. And even if we only see a change amongst us that are out here, the Bible says one can put a thousand to flight and two can put 10,000 to flight. I'm going to guess there are between 50 and 100 people here. That's a really big math number that I'm not even going to try to figure out. But if those of us here can start to love one another, somebody might see our love and it might make a difference in their life. So love, my brothers and my sisters, it conquers all. Speaking of the donut truck, we have prepaid both Bethel AME and Noblesville first, so the donuts are free. I think there's coffee and other stuff, too. So our idea is we want this to become a little bit of fellowship afterwards, so don't run off. Try to make a friend, make a connection. The passage I'm going to focus on comes from 1 John 1, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If we claim we don't have sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from everything we've done wrong. If we claim we have never sinned, we make him a liar, and his word 
is not in us. Well, I've shared with people on more than one occasion that I believe there's going to be someday a discovery that there's a specific gene that's going to have some fancy scientific name, but in the vernacular we're going to call it the know-it-all gene. I've had this conversation with my brother many a times, and we're convinced this know-it-all gene exists in the Reardon family. We've seen it in more than one generation in our family, but most specifically, we saw it in our father. Now, my father, who's passed, he was a brilliant man. He was a mechanical genius. He was an air traffic controller, required making complicated, life-saving decisions under great pressure. He was a wealth of information and also of opinions, but man, he could never admit he was wrong. If he thought something was true, there was no talking him out of it. I remember one time our whole family got to go to a Colts game. And this was back when they played in the RCA Dome. Remember that? And the game finished, and we all got up, and I pointed that we are going to have to make ourselves. We were sitting kind of on the southeast side of the stadium, and I said, we're going to make our way over to the northwest side of the stadium. And... My dad said, well, no, that's not where we're at. We're over here. <laughs> and my brother and I looked at each other, and we had this look like, we've got him. <laughs> For once, he's going to have to admit he's wrong. So we very carefully, as we made our way around, we got down to the bottom level because we were on the upper deck. And then I pointed out, okay, there's the, the southeast entrance, Dad, okay? And then we got over, and here's the northeast entrance, Dad. <laughs> And then we got the southeast edge. I see, Dad, see? And he said, well, that's the one I was pointing at. <laughs> that was our dad. I don't think he ever admitted he was ever wrong once in his entire life. And he wasn't all wrong very often. But here's the problem with that. When we have that know-it-all attitude, it isolates us from others. And even more importantly, it prevents us from learning from others who may offer a different perspective. A little bit of humility goes a long ways towards making us more human and making us more connected to one another. I've discovered in my journey, and this is my journey of racial awareness, a little bit of humility goes a long way. You know, I thought I was racially aware before the events that occurred the last few years. I had a, I was fascinated with the civil rights movement. I was just young enough, it was kind of uh, beyond me by the time I became more politically aware. I've always been inspired by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Some of the pastor mentors I had in our South Indiana conference came from the South as they could not be who they were in the civil rights era that they were pastoring. And they became pastors I looked up to. But when the George Floyd incident happened, something grabbed me in a godlike way. And you know, the strange thing is, it, it came on my phone, at my Twitter feed. And I saw on my Twitter feed, somebody mentioned this simple little statement, racial incidents are not on the increase, they're just being videoed. That hit me up the side of my head like nothing else. And I realized that, you know, I've got a bias. 
I had unconsciously been thinking every time you see a racial incident that I, I assume it was the fault of the person that was arrested. I realized that I had that bias in part because I'd served as a negotiator with the SWAT team in Floyd County. And I found myself horrified when I began to look at things a little differently. I, I, I found the Armand Arbery murder a young black man who was just out jogging, killed by two vigilante white men who thought they were doing something good. And so I began a study of journey, and I was fortunate that our church staff chose to also take that journey with me. And members of the congregation did as well. We read Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison and learned a lot of things, started asking questions of our friends, I asked people that I had as friends and acquaintances with persons of color, and everybody I talked to, everybody had a story to tell where they were judged simply because of the color of their skin. So I, along with our church staff, we've been humbled discovering how little we know about what people of minority populations experience in our country. And we don't have all the answers yet. I don't know how we're going to solve the challenges, the inequities, the injustices that are still there. But one thing I do know is we got to have better conversations, and that's what this Sunday's about, to start some connections, to start more conversations, and, and to feed into what is taking place in our community, because there is a growing movement. The Noblesville Diversity Coalition is working to intentionally find ways for us to have intentional conversations. But one thing I know is that those conversations will go better if we have just a little less defensiveness. And I know I'm speaking more to people that look like me. But we, one thing we have to learn, and one thing we've discovered, our staff just is finishing this week the book Bias by Jennifer Everhart. Excellent book. Stanford professor, well-researched. And, and she teaches us that this issue of racial bias is not just a white problem, it's a human problem. And she shares her own personal story. Jennifer Everhart grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and then her family moved to a more predominantly white suburb of Beechwood. And she talks about, after living 12 years in Cleveland, Ohio, how she's a little nervous going into her middle school there, which was predominantly white students. She thought they would make fun of her. Make fun of her brown skin, her wiry hair, her dark, large eyes. She worried about her way of speaking, her cadence, her word choice, her voice. And yet when she arrived, she found that the white students went out of their way to welcome her. They introduced themselves. They invited her to eat with them at lunch. Her classmates seemed genuinely concerned in helping her transition to this new place. And she was grateful and yet, she struggled to make new friends. She'd call students by the wrong name. She'd walk past a classmate in the hall without speaking to them. She'd fail to remember a girl that she shared the lunch table with in the cafeteria the day before. They didn't seem, though, to hold it against her. They understood that she was meeting people every day. There was a lot to take in, but she knew there was something more going on here. Every day she was confronted with a mass of white faces that she could not distinguish from one another. 
She had no practice recognizing white faces. They all looked alike to her. She could describe in detail the face of the black woman she happened to pass in the shopping mall the day before, but she could not pick out of the crowd the white girl who sat next to her in English class every day. And she tried training herself to pay attention to those features. She tried to pay attention to eye color and various shades of blonde hair, freckles. She tried remembering the most distinctive feature about each person she encountered, but all the faces just blend together in her mind. And as time went on, she worried that her new friends would begin to drift away. And she became a different person in that new neighborhood. She was once confident, now she was awkward and uncertain, hesitant and withdrawn. And for a while she was convinced those girls were whispering behind her back. And later she'd find out they were planning a surprise birthday party for her the whole time. She was moved beyond words by the gesture because no one ever had planned a surprise birthday party for her. But when they finished the keg, hugged the pie, and parted ways, she was still not confident that she could tell the faces apart. It would be years later, through her research, that she discovered there was a reason for that. For nearly 50 years, scientists have been documenting that people are much better at recognizing faces of their own race than faces of other races. It's a finding called the other race effect. And it's a universal phenomenon. It happens to all people. Our minds are simply geared to sort out and categorize people. It's something that's very natural for us. And it happens early and it intensifies over time. By the time babies are three months old, their brains react more strongly to faces of their own race than the faces of people unlike them. Three months old. We learn what's important. The faces we see every day, and over time, our brain builds a preference for those faces. At the same at the expense of skills needed to recognize others less relevant. And that experience-driven evolution of faith perception, the face perception skills, remodels our brains so that they can operate more efficiently. It's, it's part of how we cope with life and all of its diversity. And so that cringeworthy expression, they all look alike, has long been considered the province of the bigot. It's a, actually a function of biology and exposure. So this means we're all prone to bias. We can't help it. But it's something every person of every race needs to acknowledge if we understand how that bias may impact our interactions with others. And it becomes a challenge for people in the majority to consider putting ourselves in the shoes of others because we don't have to think about the color of our skin very often. Most of the time we're surrounded by people who are like us. We're surrounded by people and don't know what it's like for someone who grows up as a minority in a predominantly white world. And so for me, that's where our faith comes in. This is where I hope we can put aside our politics, regardless of what side of the fence we're on, and realize that if we're to be followers of Jesus, then we need to have in our hearts a desire to see the world through the eyes of those who are unlike us, and especially those who are sometimes marginalized. Our scripture says, all, 
have sinned and fallen short. None of us know it all or do it all right. And the sooner we recognize that, the faster we are the benefit of God's amazing grace. That humility leads us to discover our weaknesses and misunderstandings, which make it possible for God to do great things in and through us. And please don't get hung up too much on that label of sinner. Sometimes we throw that word around as much as we throw it around racist. The Greek word for sin is hamartia, and it means literally to miss the mark. To be a sinner means that God has dreams for us that we're failing to realize. We need God's grace to see our weaknesses. We need God's strength to become what we're meant to be. So I would encourage us to approach our racial challenges with the same attitude. We can do better. And it starts by embracing a little humility and recognize we don't know it all. We don't know what it's like to grow up black in a predominantly white community. We don't know what it's like to be a second generation Asian American and still be considered as being from somewhere else. We don't know what it's like to be female in a role that has been traditionally held by men. We don't know what we don't know. One week ago, once again, we experienced a mass shooting motivated by racial prejudice. Ten people killed in Buffalo, New York. Thirteen were shot by someone inspired by racial hate. And these incidents have happened so often that we've just kind of grown numb, haven't we? We hear it, we feel sad for a day or two, and then we go on with life. And it's so easy to just explain it away as just another socially maladjusted white male who spends too much time with extremist social media. But think about how would we react if it was an African-American who shot and killed 10 white people in our town of Noblesville? Would you think we'd have a little different reaction? Can you imagine the anger that would arise and the demand for action to be taken? So we need to make sure to call out hate wherever we see it. We need to require our government officials and candidates to treat all people with respect. We need to turn off news media that grows its ratings by demonizing the opposition. And as Christians, we should be leading the way to help the world see our relationships through the eyes of people different from us. So I invite you to do some reading by an author that you may not be aware of or may even agree with. Seek out someone who's different from you and start a conversation that could turn into a relationship. Today, make a friend and decide to eventually share a lunch. Because I think the best way to overcome our racial divides is by investing time in relationships that enable us to truly see one another. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you for bringing us together. We know there's many more that would like to be here that you've brought who needs to be here today. May we make a connection. May we start a potential relationship but who knows where it might lead. 
And may we lead the way, to continue to lead the way in this community in Noblesville. So this becomes a place, a community where all are welcomed. That all can thrive. And all are loved. Give us that calling. We don't have to be know-it-alls. We're all sinners. We all got something that we need to learn. We all have growth that we need to experience. Give us that humble heart through Christ our Lord. Amen.